I'm Seth for Privacy, and thanks so much for joining us on the journey to sovereignty. We're beyond thrilled to have a place for us to chat about all things sovereignty, the why and how of reclaiming your digital sovereignty, and to give you all a chance to chime in, ask questions, and join the conversation. Journey to Sovereignty is brought to you by Foundation, where we build Bitcoin-centric tools that empower you to reclaim your digital sovereignty. This includes our Passport Hardware Wallet and Envoy mobile app. Uh, obviously, we're going to go a little bit of a different angle with this one than we have in the past, uh, pivoting a bit from our privacy series because none of us really expected the last few days to, to go down like this. So today we're going to talk about why Bitcoin doesn't need banks. Um, really excited to jump into that. Uh, as always, I'm joined by Bitcoin Q&A, Head of Customer Experience here at Foundation, and our CEO and co-founder, Zach Herbert. But we're also excited to have the newest Foundation team member, Owen, joining us today as well. How's it going, everybody? Hi, thanks for having me. Going great. Obviously, not the weekend any of us had seen coming when we scheduled this space. Uh, but how are y'all feeling after all this this banking craziness over the past few days? I was uh, pretty stressed out on uh, the end of last week. Um, luckily, we at Foundation, you know, didn't have any funds in um, Silicon Valley Bank. But um, crazy just to think that so many startups did. Um, but I'm, I'm feeling pretty, uh, empowered and, and pumped up now. I don't know if that's the, the right reaction, but seeing how the Bitcoin price has responded to everything, I think is, you know, extremely validating for Bitcoin. Yeah. I think, um, one thing I've noticed is it, it, this is the first time that we've seen, um, a banking collapse, uh, of this scale in the sort of true social media era, you know, the last big, big collapse we had was, was back in 2008. And I think people are saying that this is, you know, roughly equivalent to, to the Lieberman brothers, uh, moment in terms of size. But, um, what I've noticed this time around is the, the way in which the information is spread so quickly and, um, and the sort of panic that that's induced into certain circles, um, so quickly just through the very nature of, um, just how quickly all the information is spreading from everywhere. And um, I was listening to another podcast uh, that was, I think it was recorded live on Sunday and they were talking about the first bank collapse. And then literally as they were on there, they're like, holy shit, another one's just gone down. And, you know, we've, we've never been in this situation before where, you know, banks are falling and we're, we're kind of learning about it exactly as it happens. So definitely unprecedented times, but also definitely echo Zach's thoughts around, you know, feeling empowered and, you know, feeling like, a little bit smug, I guess, that, you know, this is why, literally why we Bitcoin to, to opt out of all this madness and this craziness. So um, I think it's going to be a pretty spicy uh, rest of the year. And I'm sure this probably isn't going to be the last uh, of the banking collapses. Um, but yeah, we'll just have to wait and see what unfolds. Is this it? Do you think it's happening? That's the million dollar or, well, the, or the seven trillion dollar question, I guess. Um, I, I, ultimately, I'm not going to profess to know, and I'm sure most of us on the call probably won't either. But um, the the one thing that I will say is it, <clears throat> it, it the way that this these types of things usually play out, I know they're not a common type of thing, but um, it can sometimes happen in a sort of contagion effect where one leads to the next, leads to the next. You know, we've seen three banks go down now in the space of, what, two weeks. Um, so I think it's probably safe bet to, to say that there's probably more to come. Yeah, I think this just shows how fragile everything is. I feel like the entire system is held together by like duct tape at this point. Um, and I think it's in incredible to actually see the psychology, um, the human psychology of a bank run take place and how it wasn't sparked by uh, panic on social media. It was actually sparked by 
you know, um, really a, some prominent venture capital investors, uh, and, and, and then just kind of cascading mm-hmm. to many, many VC investors warning their portfolio companies to pull their money out of uh, SVB. Um, I had multiple <laughs> messages on Thursday night from some of our investors asking, you know, if we had money in SVB. And um, it, it it's almost like um, it was almost started by, you could say like smart money or institutional capital, which I think is is kind of crazy because usually you think bank run, you think about just people generally panicking. This was um, very much like, like the the venture capital investors kind of knew it was going to cause a bank run, but you know, self-interest, right? Get your money out, get your portfolio company's money out, you know, as fast as possible before anyone else is. And so seeing that take place, you know, in, in modern times is just, is just fascinating. And, you know, every bank is basically insolvent, right? I mean, no bank in our system can actually survive a bank run. It doesn't really matter what assets they have on the books. And so to see this happen, I mean, in my mind, this is just like the, this is the beginning. But how uh, personally I've felt so uh, safe and secure with my Bitcoin stack. I mean, everyone else still considers this the risk on asset and I'm looking at it and I'm sleeping really well at night whilst everything is blowing up around us. I'm sure you guys probably feel the same. Yeah, me as well. And even for the company, I mean, um, I think it's so cool to be able to, you know, be a company in the Bitcoin space and, and hold Bitcoin because what I was thinking over the weekend was that even if our <laughs> all the banks collapse, you know, we'd still be able to meet payroll. And I think that's that's really powerful. Yeah, can anybody give kind of like a TLDR on why the bank run happened? I mean, you hit on it, Zach, on like why the why people started to get their money out, but why did people feel that there was an urgency to get their money out? Uh, maybe Owen, you have a little bit more to to add around some of the financial background there. I know we don't want to go too de- in depth into that because I want to focus on kind of actionable things here, but I think a, a TLDR is really helpful. Okay, I can I can give my recap of what I understand happened. Maybe Zach has some more input as a as a founder and a CEO. As I understand it, uh, the bank threw a ton of money into bonds because that's a safe place to keep hold of your uh, reserves. And then over 2022, the Fed hiking has meant that the bonds are now worth significantly less. And because they're a venture capital heavy bank, all of their customers have been kind of draining money out over 2022 as they've been trying to make their payrolls and so on and so forth, covering bills. And then we reach this point now where there's suddenly no, there's no cash reserves left. And if you were to sell some bonds to recoup some so you can continue funding your deposits, they're all coming at, at a, a massive loss. So this is sort of the Fed's doing through and through. But that's my understanding. Yeah, I think you you got that right. Um, and, you know, more specifically, uh, SVB had to sell, you know, a bunch of, um, you know, assets at a loss, um, at a multi-billion dollar loss. Then right after they did that, they went out to raise more uh, capital <laughs> in the form of equity and, and debt. And that spooked um, a lot of people that spooked the markets. And then, you know, some of the um, more prominent venture investors that watch that stuff, uh, you know, saw that maybe SVB is um, insolvent or, or at risk of becoming insolvent. And then they urged their portfolio companies to pull their money. So I think um, it, it was really just a loss of faith in the bank. Um, you know, you see that they just liquidated a lot of, you know, um, you know, assets at a, at a loss. Um, and then they immediately went around to raise, uh, turned around to try to raise money. 
and that sends a signal that uh, that they are potentially in trouble. And as soon as that happens, and then you pull your money out, and more and more people pull their money out, you know, it starts a, a bank run. So that's I think that's a good short summary of um, of what happened. Yeah, I think the other interesting fact that I've come to learn uh, over the course of this whole you know two week debacle is um, the in the financial industry there's this thing called FDIC insurance where um, the this FDIC uh, company or body uh, will will offer insurance to all account holders um, up to a certain limit. I believe in the US that that's uh, two hundred fifty thousand dollars. So if you've got that that amount or less in your bank account and the bank disappears through mismanagement or whatever reason, the FDIC will make you whole again. Um, the interesting thing that's come to light on top of that um, is that the Fed has said that they're going to make all uh, depositors whole, regardless of the amount that they've got in their bank. Um, and I'll give the listeners one guess where that money is going to come from. Um, I presume they're just going to switch on the money printer again and and essentially just socialize those losses so that, you know, they're going to dilute the money supply and make all of the the the, de- uh, the, the depositors whole, uh, which I'm sure they'll be very glad about. Um, but they're essentially just socializing those those losses and, you know, the whole economy you know, and anybody else who holds dollars is, is going to be paying the price for that through, you know, this bank's mismanagement of, of their assets under management. Yeah, I think the mechanism is actually a little bit more complicated, but I think what you said definitely holds true, especially if we see this contagion spread to more banks. You know, we've had a lot, a lot of people went on uh, TV, you know, um, to kind of defend the administration and FDIC and the Fed and Treasury and so on and say that, you know, that, uh, that these costs will not be passed on to the actual consumer or the public, that instead it's going to be increasing the costs that banks pay to be part of this FDIC system. But I mean, come on, it, ultimately it has to be passed on to, you know, to the, to, to the public at some point, maybe that's in the form of, you know, higher fees or lower interest rates in your bank account than you would have gotten at some point. But FDIC only has a couple hundred billion dollars in it. So if we saw a bunch of a uh, bunch more banks fail or larger banks fail, I mean the money's going to have to come from somewhere, and ultimately it comes back towards you know inflating the money supply. Yeah, it either comes directly from us through banks costing more or through inflation, and usually it's lately through inflation, so that people kind of miss the boat on on where that money is actually coming from and don't view it as something something personal, even though their dollars are are losing value. So thanks for diving into a lot of the kind of the background there, because I think that is is helpful to set the stage for why we need Bitcoin and, and what Bitcoin can do in situations like that. And obviously, Bitcoin was built from the ground up to stand on its own. I mean, in when we look at the the Genesis block, Satoshi put the uh, headlines about the last bailouts because he was building Bitcoin and, and shipping it to the public as a response to the 2008 financial crisis. Um, but how does Bitcoin actually help to protect us today, even without access to banks or centralized exchanges? Because most people's familiarity with Bitcoin, at least when they're new, is they come in through centralized exchanges, they wire in money from their bank account. It's very connected to the legacy system. Um, but how can Bitcoin help us even if banks are failing, even if we're unable to access a bank account? Yeah, I think the the obvious one is that, you know, it, we're, if you buy some Bitcoin and take it into your own custody, then you're opting into a system where there is a known fixed supply um, of Bitcoin, um, you know, Everybody knows that there's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoin, um, which gives you sort of a checks and balances on, you know, the amount of Bitcoin that you own now um, is going to be a certain percentage of the total possible Bitcoin that 
wouldn't can ever be created um, and that can give you some um, checks and balances and some assurances um, versus today when let's say you've got i don't know ten thousand dollars in your bank account and that could be x percentage of the total circulating circulating supply obviously it would be impossible to actually work that number out but you know you, you, i'm just trying to use an analogy um and then you know in in 10 years time um the the fed or whatever world government has uh free will essentially to go and print as much uh, of of this as they like to essentially just dilute you such that your purchasing power to buy cars food anything to just live um just gets eroded slowly over time uh, although i say slowly i mean that's starting to happen uh, much much faster so um yeah that's a key one for me just you know buying into a, a fixed supply asset that you know um so long as you uphold the the rules of bitcoin um and everybody else around you agrees on those rules then um you, you you're never going to be kind of your wealth is can't be inflated away relative to the amount of bitcoin in existence and that's just the debasement stuff, right? I mean, you, you, practically speaking, you can't really self-custody your fiat currency. You can have some physical cash in your house, maybe, but if you want to transact on the fiat network, uh, self-sovereignly, well, you you just can't. Like you, you can't run a Visa node. You can't. Um, you have to go and ask the bank's permission to send to other bank accounts for you. So there's just no. You you can't do it without them. It's not not a feature of the system. Whereas if you compare it to Bitcoin, I was moving some stuff around over this weekend whilst things were blowing up. And you know, it's amazing how how simple it is. You know, I'm, I'm self-custodying the coins. I'm moving them with my own node, communicating with the network. I didn't need anyone's permission or help whatsoever. It works 24 seven all the time. No problem. It's uh, once you've come, come over to this side, if anything else seems really backwards by comparison. The cash one's a great analogy. Um, you know, it's where society today is slowly eroding cash from from most countries. Um, you know, it's better in some places than others, but that really is the the the, the last bastion of hope of the fiat system. Is you know, cash is great in terms of private um, being able to operate privately, uh, even more so the Bitcoin. Some may argue, um, but yeah, that's literally your only option. Uh, to be able to transact in a peer-to-peer -peer fashion where you don't need to go and ask for uh, permission from, you know, Bank X to say, you know, can I send Zach some some money? And unfortunately, you know, as, as great as cash is, it's been eroded away and the limits at which you can uh, withdraw what is essentially your own money from a bank in, in terms of physical cash um, is getting more and more difficult. You know, it's the thresholds before they start asking questions are, almost stupidly low um in in most countries especially the western ones uh these days so um that is a a war that's slowly being lost unfortunately um which you know brings us on to onto bitcoin to be able to act as a digital form of cash um via the various methods that, that owens just covered so yeah, and I, I love that focus on digital cash. I mean, that's kind of the the meme or the narrative that hits home most for me. And in situations like this, like cash is king in crazy financial markets, but the ability to have digital cash that's not under control of any sovereign nation that's that's under our complete control is a, a huge piece of that. Um, but I think a lot of people, especially when they approach Bitcoin from an investment perspective, can view it as very similar to stocks and that they can just buy it, have it on an exchange, and they treat that as an asset that helps them in times of financial crises because potentially it's not correlated with 
like a broader market collapse or the stock market or those sorts of things. Um, but I think there's a really fine line between Bitcoin as an investment vehicle and Bitcoin as an actual tool for opting out of a broken system and as a tool that can help in financial crises. And I think self-custody is a really big piece of that. Um, but what kind of stands out to you as far as how important self-custody is when we think about Bitcoin as a tool to opt out of these kind of failing bank systems? Yeah, I think if you're not self-custodying your Bitcoin and you are just using it as kind of, let's say, an investment vehicle um, analogous to a stock um, where you would typically leave that with a broker, you know, the Bitcoin version of that would be leaving it on an exchange, um, then you kind of relinquish all of the great powers that Bitcoin can afford you in terms of censorship resistance, uh, not being able to be inflated away and, you know, you, knowing exactly how much of a percentage of the network that you're fully in control of. Um, if you're not fully in control of your your Bitcoin private keys, then you don't have any of those powers. You're kind of passing them off to whichever exchange or custodian that you're leaving your Bitcoin with. So um, it's, yeah, you, you can essentially look at Bitcoin as a stock when it's treated like that, um, which might be great for certain people. Um, but what I would say to that is that it's great until it's not. Um, you know, we've seen countless amounts of Bitcoin exchanges go down for for various methods, be it through mismanagement or, you know, theft from the founders, whatnot. Um, so, yeah, like I say, that, that approach works great until it doesn't. So uh, we've seen time and time again that, unfortunately, self-custody is the only way that you can assure that this doesn't happen to you. Um, so super, super important. Right. I mean, the time when you really need it to work is the time when things are under great stress. And so that's the time where it may not actually work. The exchange just may just cancel your account or, or refuse the withdrawals or suspend withdrawals. We saw a lot of this over the last year. Um, I think a lot of people find it really intimidating, the self-custody stuff and actually interacting on the network natively, if you will. Um, but it's just not at all. I mean, I also was like that once. And then once you start out using it, you, if you can get over the hurdle of, okay, I need to look after these private keys, I have to protect this secret because the secret is the money, basically. Once you make a piece of that and figure out whatever way to do that that you're comfortable with, and you start actually using the network, it actually works great. I mean, it's it's incredibly um, relieving, I guess, or you, know, you, you set up your transaction, you can see how it's going, you can see what's happening with it, it's been broadcast, it's in the mempool, it's waiting, it's three blocks away or something. And then you compare that, you go and make a bank transfer after that, and you log, try and log into your bank account, hope you don't, haven't been locked out. You request to make a transfer, hope they don't deny it. Uh, you send the transfer, it's going to get through at some time in the next three days. Where is it? Don't know. Is it completed yet? Don't know. Just have to wait and see. Is it going to bounce? I don't know. What are the fees? Are you sending it overseas? It's expensive. So it's just once, you, once you've kind of gotten over that hurdle and started self-custodying and using it, the tools yourself it's actually it was it was such a breath of fresh air to get used to it things just the bitcoin system works really well i'm trailing off bail me out zach <laughs> i'll bail you out um no i mean i think that if you if you keep bitcoin on an exchange there's not much difference from that and keeping cash in your traditional fiat bank account um, you know, exchanges are uh, essentially attached to the fiat monetary system. Uh, customers on exchanges hold uh, hold a balance both in Bitcoin or crypto and in fiat. And so even if an exchange is holding 100% of its Bitcoin and crypto deposits in reserves, which we hope that's the case for, you know, large ones like Coinbase and Gemini and so on, but was supposed to be the case for... FTX, you know, and, and some of these others that 
obviously we're operating at fractional reserves, but even if they are holding a hundred percent of the, that Bitcoin in reserve, uh, if they get cut off from the banking system or if there's some kind of banking collapse or bank run, like we're seeing now, and it's something that, you know, is, um, maybe is, instead of resolving over the weekend takes weeks or months to resolve or for FDIC to kick in because, you know, it drains all the funds in FDIC and so on. It's very likely that the exchange is going to cut off your, your Bitcoin withdrawals as well. Um, you know, you're going to, they're going to have customers they have to cover who have fiat that's cut off and, you know, are they really going to just let you withdraw all your Bitcoin and kind of drain, you know, all the, uh, you know, all the money out of their account. So I think that, if you're concerned about what's happened in the last few days and you and you're holding bitcoin because you know you think that bitcoin i think rightfully so is going to protect you from this and was designed for this you should not be holding it in an exchange <laughs> i think the the you mentioned fractional reserves there with with um cryptocurrency exchanges which is probably a commonly accepted fact that some of them or most of them are probably running at some form of fractional reserve um you know we could all probably make guesses at somewhere between 50 to 80 percent to to compensate for some apocalyptic days maybe where they get heavy withdrawals to to draw the analogy between that and the current fiat debt-based system where specifically in the us that these banks have a zero reserve zero percent reserve and that's fully legal just really paints a picture as to how volatile and fragile this whole system is that um you know you get a couple of unhappy customers or get freaked out customers that want to start withdrawing their cash to to jump to quote unquote the safety of cash or to a, a larger bank um you can quickly see uh sorry you can see easily how this can quickly unravel and unfold and just turn into a complete apocalyptic breakdown of the whole banking system when they just have zero reserves easily and if i had to guess like which bitcoin or crypto exchanges had full reserves I would say number one river, um, I, I think absolutely has full reserves. I would say Gemini probably does because of, of how regulated they are in New York. I would say Coinbase probably does as well, but you never know if some, one of them makes like a mistake, right? Like there was a pretty in-depth um, article, I think it was in like Forbes or Fortune or one of those publications a couple of years back detailing how Coinbase stores their cryptocurrency and they have all these like physical printouts with QR codes distributed in multiple locations and they have their own kind of their own system. And so you never know, you could have a malicious employee or multiple employees. You could have government step in to freeze withdrawals. You could have um, an honest mistake cause, you know, uh, a loss of funds or, you know, just like a great example is how Mt. Gox was hacked. And then, you know, that kind of led to the entire collapse. And so even if you, trust the exchanges i think there's always a, a high likelihood that things could collapse and even if they have all their reserves i mean a lot of exchanges are holding uh have holding stable coins or, or storing stable coins on behalf of um their users i mean we saw usdc depeg pretty wildly um over the weekend i think it dropped to like in the low 80 cents so that's almost 20 percent you know what's supposed to be a stable coin so that kind of stuff happens, you know, the rules just break down and exchange would say, well, we just, we just were holding all these stable coins and now those stable coins got wiped out and DPEG. So now we have to raise your, your Bitcoin withdrawals, right? So anything can happen in these kinds of scenarios and Bitcoin was designed for these scenarios, but only if you store it yourself. Right. So 
think if you're not self-custodying your coins, then you are to some degree exposed to an exchange. Don't think of it as they're custodying them for you. Think of it as you're exposed to all of the potential things that could go wrong with that exchange and their internal management systems like you described with the QR codes or whatever. I've never heard that before. And all the legislative risk that they're exposed to, all the regulation stuff and all their counterparties and all that. That's who's holding your coins for you if it's not you yourself. So do you want to look after the seed words? You want to look after that secret yourself or are you willing to take on that level of exposure? And to be honest, I'm starting to think the same way about fiat banks. Am I willing to have a degree of my wealth exposed to the fiat system and fiat banks and so on, where you just have to ask permission from them to be able to do anything and hope that you don't get debased, hope that you don't get rug pulled, or will you custody yourself? Yeah, yeah, we we don't need to re-implement the legacy banking system with Bitcoin. Uh, we have the opportunity to to really do things different, and Bitcoin is is built to do things different, but. Um, avoiding those exchanges can feel very tricky or very daunting to people. Um, but I want to dive in a little bit into what the key alternatives today are for actually buying, selling Bitcoin, for for on-ramping into Bitcoin, for bringing new people into Bitcoin. Because I think a lot of people are surprised to learn how many options there are and how good the options are today for actually buying and selling Bitcoin without having to use an exchange, a, a centralized exchange, without having to give over KYC info, without having to connect your bank account or wire money in and, and removing a lot of the the permission that's involved in the centralized exchanges. Um, so let's dive a little bit into to what the key alternatives are today for getting Bitcoin in a way that doesn't involve a bank account. Yeah, maybe I'll uh, start to hit on the kind of location specific ones first uh, that may or may not be um, relative, relative, relevant to the people listening to this. So uh, one of the great ways uh, that's got a slightly higher barrier to entry um, than some of the ones we'll cover off later will be uh, mining. Um, you know, anybody has the ability to buy a, buy a essentially a, a specific uh, computer that's really good at mining Bitcoin, uh, plug that in in their home. Um, and have a slow, slow and steady stream stream of satoshis coming into their Bitcoin wallet uh, without asking permission from anybody else. Um, they can connect to a what's called a mining pool to kind of uh, level out those rewards for them as well. Um, but yeah, really great way to kind of um, spend some electricity and get some satoshis back. Uh, the reason I put this under the umbrella of it being quite uh, a location specific one, um, if you're somebody like me that lives in the UK and you've got uh, a an electricity uh, cost of like 50 cents per kilowatt hour then mining bitcoin is going to be coming to you at a significant loss um, if you're somebody that lives in let's say texas and you've got five cents per kilowatt hour uh, electricity costs then mining uh, if you can acquire the miners at a good rate uh, makes is a really really great option for acquiring some sats um, in a really risk-free way uh, that is also quite hands off. You know, once you've got this miner set up and running, uh, as long as it's got power, it'll sit there uh, hashing away and bringing you in some sats. So, really great way. But like I say, it's very situationally dependent on uh, your electricity costs or how easy you've got uh, access to some cheap energy. Uh, another great option uh, before I hand it over to the other guys is um, uh, Azteco vouchers or Bitcoin ATMs. I'll put these under the same umbrella where. Um, you have a store uh, that either has these vouchers or it has uh, an ATM, which looks and acts very similar to a typical ATM, except it doesn't dispense cash, it dispenses Bitcoin. Um, you can walk up to any one of these dispensers, uh, put in $100 of Bitcoin um, and walk away with $100 equivalent or maybe slightly less to account for the fees um, of SATs straight into your wallet. Um, 
ATMs are great in the USA. Uh, they're, they're all over the place. Uh, you've just got to be careful with the ones that you pick. Some uh, ask for more information than others do. Um, a great uh, a great website is Coin ATM Radar, where you can just punch in your location and see what's around you. Um, and the Azteco vouchers, again, they work very similar. You can hand over some cash to any shop that sells these, these vouchers um, and walk away with a voucher to withdraw some Bitcoin directly into your into your Bitcoin wallet that you're immediately uh, self-custodying. Um, the the website for that is uh, as azte.co. Um, and again, they've got their own map. You can just punch in your location and find out what's in the uh, in the vicinity for you. Um, again, great in the US, uh, great in most Western countries. The further east you go, Azteco and ATM seem to be few and far between, unfortunately. Yeah, I can dive in with a, a couple of my favorites that I've used in the past. Uh, one of the, the first ones that I started using to be able to get get Bitcoin in a way that didn't involve KYC, and that was peer-to-peer, which just to like break, briefly break down what a peer-to-peer exchange is, because I don't think we touched on that, is it's really just a, a place that helps you to communicate with other people who want to either buy or sell Bitcoin. It basically helps you find a buyer or seller, helps connect you usually has some sort of uh, tools to help protect you in case the other person tries to run off with your money or something like that, um, some sort of escrow or, or multi-sig or something. But it's essentially just a platform that helps connect you with other buyers and sellers, and you actually buy and sell directly from them, not from a central exchange, not from some pool of funds, uh, but directly from real people. Um, so two of the two of the favorite ones of mine, uh, one which I, I used initially is, is BISC. And this one, I think, is one that, that many people will have heard the name of, uh, maybe have played around with a bit um, and it has has gotten a lot better over the years can be a little bit of an interesting user experience sometimes um, but it's a, a very solid tool works well good desktop clients um, and is a, a tour only tool as well which is really important it preserves your privacy from the other peer that you're trading with uh, and gives you lots of different ways to actually acquire on bisque uh, and one of the, the beautiful things about bisque is it's actually not even like a centralized website or a centralized tool that helps connect you. It's it's directly peer-to-peer, even in the matching between buyer and seller, where you're finding each other over Tor, you're publishing buys or sells over the Tor network uh, and actually keeping those listed, and you're searching directly between those people. Um, so it has a, a bit less of kind of the regulatory risk or shutdown risk of other tools. It could keep functioning even if governments decided they didn't want this to, to exist because it is uh, such a decentralized tool at its core. Um, Another one that's a favorite of mine that is centralized in nature and that it's a, a centralized website that's run by a group of people who run it as a business uh, is called Agora Desk. Um, and it's a, a really, really good tool for helping you to find other people in your area, find people who you can do cash by mail with, uh, who you can use Zelle to buy Bitcoin, cash out to buy Bitcoin, lots of different payment methods as well. But it's a very clean website. They have tons of really good guides that walk you through every different type of payment method, uh, things to keep in mind when you're doing like face-to-face cash. It's a really good tool for being able to do that. Um, and it's it's much, yeah, it's, it's I think a lot more approachable than many of the others, um, but there are some really good new tools that I haven't used as much. Um, two of those that I haven't really touched myself are Hoddle Hoddle and Peach. Um, does anybody here have any kind of more insight on the, the Hoddle Hoddle or, or Peach Bitcoin side? Yeah, I've been playing with Peach recently, and uh, that's that's awesome. I think it's still in beta, so um, it's not ready to get mass adoption yet. But it, it's it works well. Um, it's a really slick interface. Uh, it's well designed. Under the hood, they're doing some um, escrow multi-sig stuff. So they they although they are centralized, they can't 
rug pull you. They have an extra key to resolve any disputes, and they do some stuff with time locks and things so that everyone is kind of protected and no one has uh, no one has single-handed power to rug pull. Uh, and that it's working really well. The, the interface is nice. Um, it's really easy to use, so I'd recommend looking into that. Um, we mentioned Azteca before, and whilst we move on to sort of more, maybe a little bit more um, exposure to the counterparty here, uh, you can get Azteca, I think they have an API or something, and there's various online endpoints you can get the vouchers from without having to go to a physical shop. So there's at least there were a couple of Telegram bots and maybe some other web resellers. Uh, I couldn't give you any links right now, but it's worth looking into. Uh, that works pretty well too. Uh, has anyone used Hoddle Hoddle? Because I haven't. Yeah, I'm a huge fan of uh, Hoddle Hoddle. I've been using them for a number of years now. Um, this is one of the um, centralized website ones, similar to Agoradesk uh, and Peach, which is kind of a, they're all run by, you know, official companies. Um, crucially, the crucial bit here is that these companies never actually take, uh, they never take control of the funds kind of they're a third party arbitrator to make sure that both the buyer and the seller um, are acting in good faith uh, but they're never in full control of the funds so all they can do is assist the um, if they're in in the event of a dispute uh, let's say that the um, I as the buyer send over my fiat via whichever method that I choose and there's literally hundreds of methods that you can choose again depending on where you are in the world let's say I do that um, and I can prove that and then the buyer never releases the, the Bitcoin to me. Um, I can prove that I've sent the fiat. Hoddle Hoddle can work with me because they're that third party in the, the multi-sig wallet. Say they'll check my proof and go, yep, Q&A sent that fiat. Um, so I'm going to sign with the second key to release that Bitcoin and they kind of take the seller out of it and they can ensure that both that both parties are acting in good faith, such that you can go into these trades fairly confident that the worst that's going to happen is you're going to have a bit of a headache and just have to go through a dispute resolution. Um, but I can hand on heart say in the in the over two years I've been using Huddle Huddle uh, and similar websites, I've never had to go through a, re a dispute resolution. So um, that's not to say it could never happen. Uh, that's always a risk when you take when you use these peer to peer markets. But I think the um, the pros far outweigh the cons in terms of you know the privacy that you get from buying directly from another peer um and being able to you know not tie your your real world identity to this bitcoin so that you can again leverage all of the the great properties that bitcoin offers in terms of true censorship resistance true seizure, seizure resistance um etc etc so yeah huge fan of hodl hodl one i've been using for a long long time one thing with peer-to-peer -peer trading if we go back to what i said earlier about exposure is that um you know over this weekend if you were thinking, oh, no, I need to buy or I need to sell some Bitcoin, um, and you were going to be going through a centralized exchange, you have to be worried about, has their bank gone under? Do I even know what bank they use? If I sell some coins on their platform, am I going to be able to get the fiat back out or not? Whereas if you're dealing peer-to-peer, -peer, you're dealing with you know, some individual person it's just sending you some money from their account. So it's much less risky, I think, in that sense. Yeah, I can I can add on to Q&A's point that in a little over two years now, I think, of not touching a centralized KYC exchange, only using these decentralized alternatives, I've also never had anything go to arbitration. The one trade that I lost funds in was because I was dumb and accidentally hit the button too early and sent the sent the funds to the other person before they had actually sent me the the money back. So the only time that I've had issues were just because I made a mistake and ignored the the instructions and, and didn't use it properly. So it it's pretty solid. And and one of the things also to kind of harp on to what you just said, Owen, is 
normally in these systems, you only release the the Bitcoin or you only release the fiat once there's a, a proven way that you will get the other side of the funds. So that's one of the, the beautiful pieces of it is you're not just depositing money on an exchange and hoping you can withdraw, but essentially both sides either get the funds or they don't. And in worst case, there's an arbitrator that steps in that helps to decide how funds should be dispersed to the two parties. So it's a, it's usually even a more foolproof system in the case of a kind of a failing banking uh, scenario or something like that than a centralized exchange, because you can be more sure that you either will get your money or you'll get to keep your Bitcoin. And there's not this limbo period where you've sent Bitcoin, but you have no idea if you're going to get your money back. The, the next thing I want to chat about is really one of the things that I focus on in this space is how can we be Bitcoiners of action? Like how can we take steps to help both ourselves and the people around us actually benefit from Bitcoin? Um, and so I want to chat about how we can help to make Bitcoin act as a hedge for ourselves and those around us at times like these. Uh, Cause I think there are a lot of ways that we can actually pitch in and do something to help spread Bitcoin rather than taking a selfish, I'm protected, let, let everything burn to the ground approach that I think can be a tempting attitude, but I hope that we can stay away from and, and stay focused on trying to help as many people as possible opt out of a failing system. Yeah, I, I could kick it off with uh, the circular economy piece. Um, the The biggest thing that I like to do to be able to kind of drive Bitcoin adoption and to indirectly onboard others uh, into into the Bitcoin space is to spend Bitcoin as often as I can. Um, and I know that's somewhat of a swear word to, to the, you know, that there's a heavy uh, weight on savings and using Bitcoin as a savings vehicle um, in recent years, which, you know, don't get me wrong, I do save in Bitcoin. Um, but I do think that as Bitcoiners of action, like you said, Seth, we ha should have an obligation to spend Bitcoin wherever possible. So, if you're uh, making a, pur a purchase from a store and they offer to pay in Bitcoin, then we should take that option, um, you know, and show that seller that them offering Bitcoin as a payment option is a good thing to them. Um, and hopefully, you know, if they start to see a growing number of, of people and customers doing that, they'll want to, you know, um, investigate Bitcoin a little bit more, maybe start to hold onto it, onto it rather than uh, immediately shipping it off for fiat at an exchange so that they can pay their bills. Um, and if we can continue to, to drive this circular economy and, you know, the, the, the custody, sorry, the, the store that is accepting Bitcoin there, um, if over time they start to see the benefits of it, then they may, they might start then to, um, start asking their suppliers if they will take Bitcoin so that they don't have to go back through the fiat banking rails and pay all the fees to then, you know, restart stock their store, whatever it is that they sell. Um, and then, it, you know, it starts to come around full circle then, and then it moves on to the next person. So the supplier starts to see the, the benefits of Bitcoin, et cetera, et cetera. And we start to drive this circular economy where Bitcoin doesn't go to an exchange and then back out to somebody else who's buying some. It just goes from me to, you know, it flows like actual cash does today. Um, and I think that's going to be huge that, such that if we can get to, you know, a small percentage of people doing that, um, we, we remove ourselves uh, even further from the legacy system, uh, which has been somewhat of a crutch, you know, definitely in this bootstrapping phase where we, we're kind of reliant on centralized exchanges to, to onboard the, the quote unquote normies, um, where if people are part of this circular economy that they might have a small online store that earns them some sats, um, they don't need to go to a centralized exchange to, to obtain them. So yeah, big on circular economy. Yeah, just to, to harp on that a little bit more, I, I think that if we don't build a circular economy, 
we kind of get stuck in this three-legged race scenario where we're tied to the fiat system in order to actually be able to use Bitcoin. Because even if we have Bitcoin, if we're self-custodying it, if we're doing all the right things, if we can't actually spend it for goods, if we can't actually trade it for services, we're going to have to convert back to fiat every time we want to do that. And we're going to have to keep 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 ourselves tied to the system, which just ends up exposing us to a lot more potential harm as the, the fiat system fails and, and struggles. So if we want to really be able to benefit the most from Bitcoin in kind of a, a failing bank scenario and a failing economy scenario, we have to have uh, a circular economy and able to be able to do that. So I, I love all the things you mentioned Q&A about how we can help to drive that because ultimately that will make our Bitcoin much more useful regardless of fiat price or anything like that because we can actually trade it directly for things, uh, which is a, a huge, huge piece and something that I love seeing more of the Bitcoin community, I think, reawakening to. Uh, in the past year or so. So it's it's something that we we definitely need to drive. The only other little one that I'll add is just that uh, these different peer-to-peer exchanges that we mentioned, one of the potential difficulties is that when you go to buy or sell, you have to be able to find someone who's willing to to buy or sell at whatever price you want. So liquidity can be an issue, potentially. Um, so one of the ways that we can help is if we maybe we need to sell a little Bitcoin every month to, to use fiat, or maybe we... Um, just want to be able to do it as a service to help to onboard other people. An important key piece can be being that on-ramp into Bitcoin, being willing to trade some sats for fiat in order to help to to spread Bitcoin adoption through these peer-to-peer exchanges. I think that can be a another way that we can uh, we can kind of help out and help to to drive Bitcoin forward and make it more resilient uh, to improve these these peer-to-peer exchanges. Um, and the last little way is just really to to promote and educate the availability of these tools. I think a lot of times these tools don't get used just because people don't understand that there are options out there, that they're actually pretty straightforward to use, that they're actually um, pretty low risk. Uh, so I think a lot of it is we can just kind of talk about it more, um, spread more awareness on on how we can use it. Um, the last question I had for you before we, we dive into open Q&A is just if someone is entirely new to Bitcoin and waking up because of this banking collapse, which I, I definitely think this is one of those scenarios that will open people's eyes to the the need for Bitcoin or for alternatives, what would you say to them? Like, how would you onboard them to Bitcoin and help them to acquire and and use it um, if they're they're coming in from this banking collapse and then looking for for ways to opt out? Uh, I don't know about getting people onto it. I've never been very good at orange pulling, but uh, I think the current climate is um, really selling the the importance of self-custodying like we talked about earlier like are you self-custodying your fiat no you're probably not because you can't really um but there is now an asset where you can do that and you can transact with it and with lightning and so forth it can be as easy as as any other currency system so i'd probably start there that seems to be the most prescient point at the moment what else do you guys think well, I think also just reminding the history of Bitcoin and how it was, you know, created in the wake of the 2008 financial crisis and created in response to banks failing. And now that we're living in an environment where banks are failing, I think it's a pretty uh, compelling argument to say, you know, that you should at least hold a little bit of Bitcoin just in case, you know, you are um disrupted or cut off in some way from the current banking system. Um, I think you can sleep much better 
knowing that, you know, if you have a little bit of Bitcoin in self-custody, at least you can, you can spend that if there's any problem, you know, you don't have to line up outside your bank. Right. You don't need anyone's permission or anybody's help. It just works all the time there for anybody who wants it, which is pretty amazing, really. Yeah, and, and I think in a lot of ways we can go back to the the cash or digital cash analogy, where you may want to keep some cash so that you have a way to transact in fiat in case you can't get access to your bank account or something like that. And you can really treat Bitcoin in a similar way to to keep it stashed away. Hopefully, understand the tools and how to actually use it when the time comes. But um, keeping it as that kind of rainy day scenario is definitely an approach there. Um, I think one that that has been helpful and that I've seen the most success with, um, kind of broadly with people starting to want to to dig into what bitcoin is or or what this is all about is just being willing to to give some away for free i mean even just a little bit helping someone to download a, a simple easy to use wallet sending them some sats to show them what it looks like to send what it looks like to receive um, what it looks like when you actually have bitcoin in your wallet i think that can make it a lot more tangible for people um, than it often would be otherwise and it, it helps them to get started without the hurdle of having to to approach an exchange of having to buy some from, from some random person or something like that uh, can really be a powerful tool to to get them on, to get them started. Uh, and hopefully you can take them under your wing further from that, but it was just really a one, one-off meeting. Uh, I can c- kind of connect them with some resources, give them a few sats to, to show them how it works and, and kind of go from there. Yeah, I think um, being open and honest about some of the trade-offs as well, you know, don't try and paint this as... Uh, you know, as wonderful and as great as Bitcoin is, and we're all listening to this, knowing all of the stuff that we've been talking about, but be open and honest about the trade-offs and the risks in terms of what happens if, you know, write down these 12 seed words. Once they're gone, they're gone. Or if I come into your house and steal them, your Bitcoin's gone. Um, that's going to scare a few people off. And, you know, maybe the, those people that do get scared off are not ready to to take self-custody. Um, but the, the, the people that you are open and honest with and, and still get over that hurdle um, are the types of Bitcoiner that we, we want and that we need to help us drive this uh, this movement forward. So um, I used to try and shy away from this and make things, you know, look at custodial options maybe to, to make their onboarding super smooth. But all you're really doing is kind of kicking the can down the road and um, lying to them and entering entering them into the space with what looks like visa 2.0 which is the, the exact thing that we're trying to get away from so be open and honest and you know be be um be forthcoming with the with the truth about the trade-offs of, of using this thing you know with with great power comes great responsibility and sometimes that means that you need to sit down and bang your head against the keyboard or against your phone for a little bit until you figure this stuff out all right it's i mean it's two-sided isn't it there's like you said on the one hand if you if you lose these 12 words then your money is gone but on the other hand if no one else has those 12 words, then your money is safe forever and no one is ever getting off you. So, yeah, I think being being upfront and honest about the trade-offs, th- these things are strengths as well as weaknesses. It's just a different system. It's hard to wrap your head around, but once you've kind of gotten into the groove a bit and you understand how it works and you, you have a model in your head of how this, this thing works, you can use the strengths. It's not, not just weaknesses, but it's all, not all roses either, like you said. Awesome, guys. Well, thank you for for diving into all of that. Um, I, I love being able to focus on more actionable ways that we can actually approach Bitcoin in times like these. I mean, obviously, there's there's tons of people doing really good education in this space as to like why these banks are failing, why all of this is happening. But um, ultimately, we need ways to be able to, to actually take steps that help us to actually be prepared. Uh, and I think covering these kind of peer-to-peer exchanges, miners, uh, or the ability to mine to acquire Bitcoin, um, things like Azteco are, are really, really important. So the people are aware of 
the ways that they can get Bitcoin or sell Bitcoin without having to deal with their bank account uh, in case a bank is failing or something like that. Thanks for jumping in for this episode of Journey to Sovereignty. And I hope you'll join us for our next live Twitter space every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. GMT. Joining us live gives you a chance to listen in, participate, and get your questions answered on the spot. Follow us at FoundationDVCS on Twitter to keep up with the latest news, get notifications when we go live, and much more. See you at the next one, and thanks for joining us on the Journey to Sovereignty.